The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. The history of the church is a history stained by blood. Persecution has always marked the experience of those professing faith in Christ. Take, for example, the fate of the original 11 disciples who were with Jesus in the upper room on the night before He died. Historical proof of their fates is hard to come by, but testimony in the early church holds that these disciples were all martyred except for John. All of them faced persecution in their lives. Peter was crucified in Rome during the reign of Nero. Andrew may have been crucified in Achaia, which is modern-day Greece. James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by sword at the hands of Herod the king, according to Acts chapter 12. Philip was supposedly tortured and crucified in Asia Minor. Matthew was said to have been beheaded. Thomas may have reached India and then speared to death. Nathaniel perhaps went to modern-day Turkey where he was martyred perhaps even skinned. James, the son of Alphaeus, was likely crucified. Simon, the zealot, may have been killed in Syria. Thaddeus was rumored to have been beaten to death with sticks. Only John was exiled to the island of Patmos in his old age and died sometime after, perhaps in Ephesus. The persecution these disciples suffered are representative of what believers around the world down through the centuries have faced. Today, it's estimated that as many as 100 million Christians are under persecution in the world. That's not surprising when we read the New Testament. We're told that we must expect to suffer because of our faith and allegiance to Christ. Suffering as a Christian should not catch you off guard. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering as a Christian is normal. It isn't strange. In fact, the word Peter used for strange is related to the Greek word for foreigner. In other words, suffering is not foreign to Christians. If you follow Christ faithfully, you will suffer. And Jesus said that this would happen. He said in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. For those who faithfully follow Christ, suffering is inevitable because animosity is inevitable. Likewise, Paul echoed Jesus when he wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Living a godly life in an ungodly world will not get you the praises of men, but will get you the ridicule and scorn of men. Now, it was Paul's practice to prepare believers for suffering. 
And He did this as soon as they were saved. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we read that as Paul visited the churches he had planted, he strengthened them by, quote, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's basic discipleship of new believers included preparing them to walk through many trials on the way to eternal life. And so it's not surprising that the church Paul planted in the city of Thessalonica around the year 50 A.D. was also a persecuted church. Indeed, it was a church born out of adversity. When the Gospel came to that city, persecution soon followed. According to Acts chapter 17, after many came to saving faith in Thessalonica, Jealous Jews conspired with wicked men to form a mob and set the city in an uproar over the preaching of the Gospel. The mob set out to search for Paul and his companions who were propagating the Gospel. But when they were unable to find them, the mob attacked the house of Jason, one of the new believers in the city. They dragged him and some of the other brothers before the city authorities and released them only after they posted bond. The result was that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were forced to leave the area. But even after they left, the church continued to suffer persecution. Paul mentions their suffering in his first letter to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, saying that they suffered at the hands of their countrymen just as churches elsewhere did. And the persecution didn't stop. Months after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he wrote this second letter to them. And he said in chapter 1, verse 4, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. That you are enduring. That's the present tense. That was continuing to happen. Over a year after the church was founded and Paul had left the city, the persecution continued. So from the beginning, these believers experienced great suffering because of their faith in Christ. And they needed to be encouraged by their first pastor as the persecution continued. And so Paul wrote this second letter to them in part to comfort them in their suffering. We see this in chapter 1, and especially in verses 5-10. through 10. Now, we won't finish our study of these verses this morning, but let's read them all for context as we begin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10. to 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. In this passage, Paul comforts the persecuted believers in Thessalonica by reminding them of God's righteous judgment. That's the key phrase in verse 5. The righteous judgment of God. These words picture God as a judge, which is how God is frequently depicted in Scripture. Scripture teaches us that God not only rules His creation like a king, but that He does so with righteousness and justice like a judge. For example, in Psalm 89, verse 14, we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. His throne refers to His right to rule the world He's made. And that reign, the psalmist says, is built upon righteousness and justice. Indeed, all that He does is perfectly just. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4 says His work is perfect for all His ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Justice is an aspect of His character. It's who He is. It's what He does. You cannot truly understand God unless you understand that He is righteous in all His judgments. His judgments are always right. And it's impossible for Him to be unjust. 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7 says, Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. For there is no injustice with the Lord our God. Our God never perverts justice. In Job we read 34 verse 12, the Almighty will not pervert justice. And in chapter 37 verse 23, justice and abundant righteousness He will not violate. His justice is unfailing. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5 says he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Every dawn he does not fail. He judges impartially and cannot be bribed. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 says, The Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. In fact, he delights in executing justice. Psalm 99, verse 3 says, Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And one day, this judge of all the earth who takes no bribes and shows no partiality whose justice is incorruptible, who never perverts justice and His justice is unfailing, one day this judge will come and He will judge all creation. Psalm 98, verse 8 says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And when that day comes, heaven will cry out according to Revelation chapter 16, verse 7, and chapter 19, verse 2. 
And they will cry out, True and just are your judgments. When He comes, He will render to everyone what they deserve. And He will do that with perfect righteousness and with perfect justice. Now Paul could have comforted this persecuted church in Thessalonica with the truth of God's love or His provision for them or God's wisdom over their situation or His sovereign hand in their situation. He could have comforted the church with those attributes of God. But Paul knew that this church needed to be comforted with a reminder of God's righteous judgment. God's justice is especially comforting when we've suffered injustice. When that happens, we want justice to prevail. And to know that those who wrong us won't get away with it. And to be assured that all will be made right. And certainly the Thessalonian believers had suffered injustice. They were unrighteously persecuted for their belief in Christ and were afflicted with suffering. And so as Paul's second letter to the church opens, he directs their attention to proofs of the righteous judgment of God. Specifically, he puts before them two evidences of God's justice that were meant to comfort them. As we'll see, these two evidences of God's justice also comfort us whenever we suffer injustice. The first evidence of God's justice that we find in this passage is His sustaining grace. His sustaining grace. Notice again the words of verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Now the words this is that begin the verse are not in the original Greek, but are supplied so as to make the translation make sense in English. But they help point us back to what Paul sees as evidence of God's righteous judgment in verses 3 and 4. We studied these verses last week, but look again to refresh your recollection. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul gave thanks to God that their faith was growing abundantly, their love for one another was increasing, and they remained steadfast in all the affliction that they endured. Now that's remarkable considering all that they suffered. As I said last week, those qualities, faith and love and steadfastness, don't naturally arise in the soul when one suffers. Their vibrant spiritual lives were evidence of God's grace working in them. This was especially true of their steadfast faith as they endured these persecutions. 
It was their continued faith that most concerned Paul. When Paul and his companions had to leave the city, they were concerned about what would happen to the new believers in the church without Paul, Savannah, and Timothy being there. And so he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He knew that if they continued in their faith, it would prove that the Gospel really had taken root in their lives. But if they had denied Christ and abandoned the church, then all the work that Paul, Savannah, and Timothy had done there would be for naught. So, as you might recall, when there was an opportunity, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on them. And thankfully, what Timothy found was encouraging. Paul writes again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What comforted Paul was the steadfast faith of the Thessalonian believers. And all this despite their persecution, which demonstrated that their faith was genuine. Their faith had been birthed by God and sustained by God. And so Paul opened this letter in verse 3 with an expression of thanksgiving directed toward the One who was working in their lives. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. God was at work within them and to sustain their faith. And this was evidence of the righteous judgment of God. This was proof that God's judgments are right in how He rules His creation and how He rules His people. The fact that God was working this in them was proof that God was still working on their behalf. He hadn't forsaken them. He hadn't dismissed them. He hadn't left them. Had God saved them and left them alone to suffer, He would have been unjust to set them on such a course of suffering. But His grace in their lives demonstrated that He had kept them and that He had guarded their faith and given them strength to endure. As their Father, He continued to care for them by granting them perseverance, which proved His commitment to finishing the work He started in them. Their spiritual growth and sanctification was a foretaste of their future glorification. So God had dealt with them justly in their affliction. He had sustained their faith by His grace, which was an act of His righteous judgment. And because of their steadfast faith, they would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they were suffering. Just as God hadn't rejected or abandoned them, they hadn't rejected or abandoned God. They continued to trust in Him. And so He would count them as worthy 
That word worthy means fit. He would count them as fit for the salvation He had given them. God's past grace in their lives had sustained their faith so that they could now look forward to a future grace when they would one day inherit the kingdom of God in all its fullness to come. The comfort that Paul gave the Thessalonian church can be encouraging to us as well when we suffer at the hands of unrighteous men. When we suffer injustice. We want to know that God sees us and hasn't turned a blind eye to what we're going through. In those times, we must remember that the grace of God that has sustained us so far will carry us through to the end. God's righteous judgment guarantees that the work that He began in us will be completed. And that our present sanctification guarantees our future glorification. If we've trusted in Christ, the world may reject us, but God is not. His righteous judgment about who we are is what really matters and He will make things right. So when you suffer injustice, remember God's present grace will sustain you. The second evidence of God's justice is future judgment. Paul continues in verses 6 and 7, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Now, I only want to touch on these verses because we're going to study them more in depth in the next sermon. But notice that Paul is speaking of a future judgment that God will one day bring upon the world. In this judgment, He will render to everyone what they deserve. According to verse 6, He will repay with affliction those who afflict you. That is, He will punish the unrighteous. According to verse 7, He will grant relief to you who are afflicted. That is, He will bless the righteous. So God is coming to punish the unrighteous and bless the righteous. So we can see the evidence of God's righteous judgment in His promises to judge all mankind. When He does this, He will execute His judgment with perfect justice and righteousness as He always does, since He knows perfectly everything that everyone has done, and He knows the true spiritual condition of every person's heart. But it is hard to wait for His judgment when we see so much wickedness in this world. Our indignation rises when we hear of Children abused, women ravaged, and men beheaded in places such as Israel or Ukraine. Our anger is stirred when we hear of Christians slaughtered by Muslims in Africa and believers falsely imprisoned in evil nations. Often the wicked seem to prosper in this world, while the righteous suffer. 
And so it's hard to wait for God's judgment, especially when the suffering is personal. When we've experienced severe injustice at the hands of wicked men. David struggled with this. Read his life story in the Old Testament and you'll find that though he wasn't always righteous himself, he too suffered injustice throughout his life. As he saw the wicked prosper, it at first stirred in him unrighteous thoughts. And he wrote about it in Psalm 73. Let me read you an extended passage beginning in verse 2 of Psalm 73 where he expressed his difficulty in understanding why God delays His judgment and the wicked seem to get away with their unrighteousness. He says this, Psalm 73, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. David had a hard time with what he saw in the world. It seemed like the wicked could flaunt their unrighteousness before God who they didn't even acknowledge and in fact get away with it. In his heart, he questioned the prophet of walking in righteousness and keeping a pure heart. In light of how the wicked prospered, it felt like all of this was in vain. What was the point if the wicked had it better and didn't suffer for their unrighteousness? Now, I don't think David was tempted to throw off all restraint and pursue all wicked desires. But he found that the way of righteousness is harder than the way of unrighteousness. Those who pursue righteousness suffer for it. So what's it worth? He wondered. But then David's perspective changed. He had not expressed his thoughts to anyone else and he was grateful that he didn't. His understanding changed one day as he worshipped at the temple. He continues in verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Verse 16. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. David was changed when he realized the end of unrighteousness and the gain of righteousness. Unrighteousness leads to somewhere terrible. Life in this world is not all there is. God will punish the unrighteous in His wrath with ruin and everlasting destruction. But righteousness leads to somewhere wonderful. Life in this world is not all there is. God will reward the righteous with Himself. He will draw near to them forever in His glory. And so David saw the world differently when he understood where the world was headed. He accepted that God will do as He promised. He will render to all mankind what they deserve. And on that day, no one will charge God with injustice or find fault with His delay in judgment. But all will count God as just and righteous for His final judgment in its proper time. If we didn't believe Scripture, we'd be tempted to think that the suffering and injustice in this world proves that God does not exist. Or that if He does exist, He's uninvolved in His creation. Or He doesn't care. Or He's powerless to act. After all, why would He allow such evil in the world? But if we believe the Bible about who God is, then we must come to a more compelling and reasoned conclusion about the existence of suffering and injustice. John Calvin, in his commentary on this verse, says that the presence of disorder in this world actually proves that there is judgment to come. Because we know from Scripture that God is a God of justice, then we also know that the way things are now will not stay this way. So paradoxically, injustice in this world doesn't prove there is no God or He doesn't care, that He isn't loving or that He can't act. Rather, injustice in this world proves that judgment will surely come 
Because God is a God who is just. Therefore, He has ordained that the lack of injustice in this world be a means of causing us to hope in Him alone for the final justice to come. And so we must hope in Him and entrust ourselves to Him as we wait for justice and cry out for it. When we see injustice in the world or we experience it ourselves, it is an opportunity. Indeed, it is a means of grace given to us by God to hope yet in Him. To have more faith in Him. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. That's who we have as our God. When God's final judgment comes, then all will be made right. The guilty will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated. Therefore, when you suffer injustice, remember God's future judgment will vindicate you. And so we have seen in this passage two evidences of God's righteous judgment meant to comfort us. The evidence of sustaining grace and the evidence of future judgment. When you suffer injustice, remember God's present grace will sustain you and God's future judgment will vindicate you. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that You are a God of justice. That You do only righteousness in this world. And that we've never suffered any injustice by Your hands in our lives. Nor will we ever. Father, You have put into us, it seems, a sense of justice. And this is common among all mankind. We all want justice to occur. But our rule for justice is often skewed by our own sin. And so teach us in Your Word, as we study Your Word, Your righteous rule and what true justice is so that our hearts and our consciences are aligned to Your justice, not our own sinful sense of justice. And Father, we ask that You would help us to be people of justice. Help us to do what is right in Your sight. To practice righteousness in all our dealings with others and how we deal with You. And Father, we do pray that there would be justice in this land, among our rulers, and in our laws. Where we see injustice, Father, help us to remember that Your just righteousness will one day be the rule over all the world when Your Son comes 
And so we ask that He come quickly. Come quickly, Jesus, and establish Your kingdom on earth. We look forward to that day. Until then, help us to trust You more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.